I Safta. Something went wrong in the computer here. With the whole Skype, because it's not nothing is coming on the screen here. Not me and not them, and I don't have the light on in my camera. I don't know what is going on here. I'm going to try one more time to make this call out. I close. Close. Get to the group. I know why it says that. Oh, now it's dialing. There we go. Okay, now it's real. Okay, oops, sorry. Okay, much better. Oh my gosh, it's started and who knows where. Pasha Bahar, the third week of Pirkei Aves. Um... No major significance in the date. Zion year. Except that technically we could start Kiddush Lavana. We could have started last night Kiddush Lavana. Kiddush Lavana is done on the seventh day from the Meilid. The Meilid is when the moon is born. It starts the new month. On the seventh day of the month, the moon, then Kiddush Lavana starts. Not going to go into Kiddush Lavana. Not this month. Next, if today is Zion, so Thursday is Ches, Friday is Tess, Shabbos Yud, Sunday. Next Sunday is your Aleph year. No significance. Okay. Um, and the following week we'll talk mention about Lagbein, the Great Parade. Pash Bahar, <coughs> on its own, usually, very, very often, Bahar and Bechukai Sayah together, the last two Pashas, Kumash Vayikra. This year, because it was a leap year, it was an extra month, so Pash Bahar is on its own. Very short Pasha, relatively, if I'm not mistaken. It has 57 Sukkim. Um, but yet it has seven mitzvahs say and 17 mitzvahs leisasei which is a substantial amount 25 mitzvahs in the Pasha the name of a Pasha is usually based on the first words of the Pasha in this case the first words of Aydabra Hashem Moshe. So we don't call the Pasha Vaidaber or El Moshe and Hashem's name for sure not. Usually, when the Pasik tells us Vaidaber Hashem El Moshe, the last word of the Pasik is Lamer, so saying. God spoke to Moses, saying. Here, the Pasik, in the Pasik is interjected the words Bahar Sinai. God spoke to Moses in Har Sinai, saying. But yet the parasha is not called Hasina, it's called Bahar. So although we would look at the Pasuk and we'd say that there are two words that are extra in the Pasuk, two extra words, that should be the name of the parasha, Bahar Sinai. Why is it only Bahar? What is the significance of Hasinai? Hasinai is known, it's infamy, it's, it's fame, excuse me. It's fame is Matan Terah. The Terah was given in Harsinai. Why Harsinai? Because the smallest mountain, the Medish tells us the whole fight between the mountains, Terah should be given on me because I am so proud, I'm so this, I'm that. God chose the smallest of the mountains because he said humbleness is what represents the terror. In that case, the Pasha should be called Bahar Sinai. Again, 
we should be going back on the name Sinai, not just the word Bahar. And in general, if God wanted to give the Torah in humbleness and humility, it should be done in a valley, not in a mountain. A mountain, as, even as the smallest of mountains, Har Sinai, is a mountain nonetheless. How much is humility? What's the level that a person has to have humility? Does a person have to walk around like a shmata all day long? Does a person have to say, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing all day long? How far does a person have to keep his humbleness to become humbled? And in the truth, it depends according to the spiritual level of the person. And in spirituality, as in everything else, you have the three levels, the beginner, the intermediate, and the advanced. The beginner, person just starting to practice and study Judaism, but his mindset and his personality need far and far to be trained. To put it together with the Judaism, you have sometimes those people that are naturals. It's natural they can go from totally non-religious and become totally religious and have in them their nature is to adapt to Torah. They see the beauty of Torah and they see the, the harmony and the, and the enhancement that it does for one's life and they immediately grasp the appreciation what it's all about and they just fit it like all of a sudden a glove. And you see these people that all their lives didn't have a thing, and they could be 30, 40, 50 years old, didn't have an iota of Judaism in their, in their, bo- in their bones, and suddenly Judaism became everything. We see it often, actually, families, couples, that will go off to seminars sometimes, seminar on Judaism and come back with the resolution that they're going to become totally religious does it make sense? it makes sense why does it make sense? Because the only thing that keeps a person away from being religious is ignorance. The only thing that keeps a person away from Torah observance is lack of education. By not hearing, not understanding, not grasping what it's all about. What it's really worth. commodity take a commodity like gold commodity like gold is a very very rich thing who doesn't want gold but yet how many people own gold you don't have everybody in the world walking around carrying around bars of gold with them why not some because they can't afford it and some just don't plain appreciate it. Eat, don't worry about it. They just don't appreciate it. What is more beautiful than a 14 carat? gold solid bracelet ask some people and they will tell you what's more beautiful than 18 carat 24 carat some people say no 
I like 14 better. Because the color. The 18 sometimes looks fake. It's pure, it's pure gold. It looks fake. People are used to that shiny gold that they get in the 14 karat gold. Question is, why are some people appreciating gold and some people appreciate silver? And some people appreciate crystal or fine glass or pearls. Taste, smell, we can't negotiate. We don't have a... Nobody can compare what I like, what you like. When someone is given to appreciate the beauty of something, they begin to gravitate to it. And one of the things that we're referring to is terror. When the average person begins to see how beautiful terror is, what is more beautiful than a Shabbos table? The serenity of Shabbos. The wafting smells of Shabbos. The tastes of Shabbos. And so too is Torah. And when a person devotes themselves and starts to delve into the study of Torah, life becomes a totally different mindset. Many years ago, a family in Russia received a horrifically aboding letter from the Tsar's army saying that their son was being drafted to the army. Drafted to the army was pure suicide, it was pure death, it was a death penalty. You got nowhere with that. The Tsar wanted only non-Jewish soldiers. If you were Jewish, he made you convert. And he did not leave the, let you leave the army because you were Jewish. And this Chassidisha family received this letter for their son to come he's being drafted to the army the Rebbe <coughs> in their area was Reb Nachemendel Vitebsk and immediately they dispatched they sent the son in to Nachemendel Vitebsk to tell him the story tell him this terrible terrible tragedy that's befallen the family the Bacha came in to finally to the Rebbe and the Vitebska heard out the problem and he smiled and said, you're going to be a perfect soldier. It's going to do wonders for you, the army. You're going to be absolutely amazing. You're going to be... Meantime, until you have to go learn, until you have to go join, sit down in the Besmedish and just learn Tera. Don't do anything else. Don't involve yourself in anything else. Just Torah. No. Needless to say, the Bacha walked out shaking. The Rebbe said he's going to be a perfect soldier. He's going to be in the army. He's going to be dragged. How is he going to survive that? Nobody survives. He came home. And his parents said, No, the Rebbe gave you a bracha. He started to cry. And he told them what the Rebbe said. And they joined him. And there they're all crying and bawling and wailing. They don't know what to do. Finally, the father said, you must have misunderstood, or the Rebbe must have not understood. You. This doesn't make sense. And the parents picked up, and they went to the Menachem Elavetebsk. And Menachem Elavetebsk, unfaltering, turned to them and said, I told your son, he's going to be an amazing soldier. He's going to be a top-notch soldier. And... Until he gets drafted, till the draft comes around, he should get into Bismarck and just sit and learn Taylor. No. Parents were totally ashamed, shocked. 
But the Rebbe said, the Rebbe said. They took the boy, they put him in the Rismedish, and he started learning. With a shkida diligence like never before. And the day of his draft appointment came, and he was contemplating, go or don't go. Yes, so I mean, he has to be there. They called him. And he said, you know what? They want me, they'll come get me. And he stayed and learned, and he learned, and he learned, and the day went by, and the day finished, and the next day came, and the third day, and the fourth day. In Kelvinena, nobody's looking for him. The fellow was sitting and learning. Alatayra beautifully, totally devoted, the total Ashkidas mother, but always had that little paranoia. That they're going to walk in one day and remember that he didn't show up to the draft and he's dead meat. Five years went by. Five years? And the paranoia started wearing off. <laughs> and just as he felt, started getting secure, the doors of the Vismedish burst open. And this is it. And they walk in, two strapping, clean pressed high-ranking soldiers from the Tsar's army. Where's Moshe, whatever his name was? Zalmanovich. He's tittering. But he realizes if he doesn't fess up quickly, they'll just stop killing people until he says where, until they say who he is. Nobody's going to say because nobody wants to Chassashon rat out on a, on, a, on a bacha. Nobody wants to put him into this... Uh, precarious situation but on the other hand they're going to torture it out of the people if he doesn't say he stands up and says it is I they march over to him they salute and one guy takes out of his a box with a pendant, beautiful strap, he places it around his neck. This is for your beautiful service, your magnificent service in the Tsar's army. In the meantime, the other guy unrolls his declaration. A whole letter from the Tsar praising this fellow to the high heavens for his service and so he did things, what he did, his hero, hero, heroism. <laughs> he was indeed an amazing soldier, as the Rebbe promised. And they picked up, they turned on their heels, they gave him his declaration, and they left. Did the Rebbe see to it that in the schus of his terror, somebody showed up in his, in his, with his name on him? Could be. Did everything else just fall in as a regular miracle and they had no idea what happened to this guy and they came and they gave? Who knows? It wasn't, he wasn't checking, he's not investigating, and he's not looking. In America we say you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And that's exactly what he did here. He just accepted this carte blanche and continued learning. Because the Teda protected him at such a level <coughs> that it was just above understanding of the mental mind. Pash Bahar talks about one of the oddest mitzvahs that we could think of. Shemitah. Shemitah, Yovel, Six years, the person, the farmer, worked in his field. On the seventh year, he couldn't touch it. On the seventh year, you couldn't touch the field. You couldn't. What did the normal person say? Manoichel. What are we going to eat? Open the fresco again.
If you will say, What will I eat in this year? God says, Fear it not. There's nothing to worry about. God says you will be taken care of. One of the concerns that the Jews had because technically if God says I'm taking care of it what kind of question can you have what are you going to eat one of the concerns that the Eden had ma <laughs> It also refers to the union of Mon. The Mon that they ate for 40 years in the desert. God didn't let them starve in the desert. Fed them the Mon. It's a wonderful thing, the Mon. It had sustenance from it. It tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like. It was amazing. But you know something? You weren't chewing on it. It wasn't a piece of meat. It wasn't a piece of salad. It, you didn't have, you just, it was like a, a tube of, uh, like the astronauts used in tubes of uh, food. Yeah. You just, you ate this little portion and this gave you life. And the Torah therefore tells us, that although you ate the man, but the person was tortured and starved. And this was the concern, perhaps, the Jews had, that they're going to get stuck on the seventh year eating money again. And they didn't want to have to go through that again. Ma inyin shmita eitzel hasinai. Why does the Pasha talking about shmita start Bahar Sinai? Now, interestingly, this becomes a very famous quote. This Rashi's question, Ma inyin shmita eitzel hasinai, becomes one of the most famous quotes that people have whenever someone talks about something that's totally abstract something that really you can't figure out what does one thing have to do with the other that you're talking about people always quote this Rashi what does this have to do with anything else and the fact is here this is a very good question what does Shemitah have to do over here in the middle of Hasinai have a problem yeah. And it's a legit question. Out of all the parshas talk about Shemitah, why has tonight? And Rashi answers, because by Shemitah, we mention here Shemitah, we mention all its laws and all its bylaws, to teach us that everything mentioned on Sinai was mentioned with all the laws and the bylaws. Nothing was hinted. Nothing was Rosh Parakim, nothing was, uh, was um, titles. Everything had the full story. And therefore, because to show you just like this was totally given on Sin- in the Torah, the same thing also, everything else on Sinai was given totally with all its <coughs> facts. Why would Shemitah, you know, we have that different types of mitzvahs. You have the Eidus, Chukim, Mishpatim. Explained many times the difference the Eidus and the mitzvahs that testify, give testimony to things that happened to the Jews. Chukim are mitzvahs we don't understand, Mishpatim are common knowledge. 
Shemitah is quite a baffling mitzvah. Because the Chisema, what happens if a person is going to ask and want to know how we're going to live? How are we going to eat? But the tailor is warning us, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't ask that question. Tara warns us we're not allowed to ask that question. In that case, we have to accept that God says, I'm going to look after you. You're going to have food. God says, I'm going to have food. I'm going to have food. When am I going to have this food? Technically, what's going to happen is on the sixth year, my crop is going to double going to produce double. So I'll have enough reserve for the seventh year. Or triple because I need to have for the eighth year also because I can't plant in the seventh year. So I can only plant the beginning of the eighth year so when am I going to have that food? It's not going to be ready right away either. Now, those of you who haven't been into agriculture lately or don't have grandparents that are farmers, let me tell you. Neither did I. But I do know one thing. Fields, land, are not any different than people. I can't tell you this personally, I know most people on Monday morning come to work they had a weekend Friday they finished work Shabbos they didn't work anymore Sunday they rested Shabbos they rested Monday morning they're fresh throw themselves into their job Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday as the week progresses, it starts to take its toll. I tell you, I, I can't say this because, first of all, I work on Sunday. And second of all, because my sleep apnea, gotta give it some kind of name. Usually, there's a custom that we read the Torah during the week, Monday and Thursday. Why? You shouldn't go three days without reading the Torah. So we read on Shabbos, we don't read on Sunday. So before Tuesday comes around, we read on Monday. So now, no idea what it is. Then goes Tuesday, Wednesday, two days. The third day is Thursday. Again we read. Then it's Friday, and then Shabbos we read again. So, on Friday morning, when I get up from my stupor, if I'm lucky enough to get to bed, I remember that yesterday morning when we davened, we read from the Torah. So if we read from the Torah yesterday, it means today is Friday. And it gives me a total different way to wake up and to face the day, because I know it's only Friday. It's already Friday. My problem is that every Tuesday morning I have that same feeling. So we read the Torah yesterday. Oh, it must be Friday. And to my chagrin, I find out, no, it's only Tuesday and there's a whole week ahead of me still. A field works the same way. The first year, after resting for a year, Shemitah, the first year the field is in good shape. Second year, it's still giving out. Third, fourth year, no, it's starting to get shvach. Fifth and sixth year, let's mind the palvi, you're lucky what you get. You're working it every year. How much could the field take? So technically, the sixth year should be the worst of the years. 
But yet, says Hashem, I'm going to see to it that you get two and a half. You're going to get double overtime here. <laughs> would you pull off such a guarantee? Would you ever give such a guarantee? No, I wouldn't give such a guarantee. I had one occasion of having to give a guarantee. I didn't have to, but I did it anyway. Where I promised somebody that they'd be blessed with a child. And they called me a few months later, almost a year later, to tell me the little boy was born. I said, oh no. Um, it was a state trooper. <laughs> well, it wasn't... I didn't get pulled over. I was, we had, was going back from Washington. My wife had two those days before the car seats. So she had two children on her lap, and they both needed to make... So hold on, we're getting to the rest area. We're still an hour and a quarter away from New York. If they decide to make on her lap, she's in trouble for an hour and a quarter sitting in this. So I get to the rest area, and I'm looking for parking. And she says, just pull it on me. I said, it's a handicap, you're not allowed to. Pull it, I'll move the car. Okay? I pull it, I grab the kids. I run into the toilet. And of course, she didn't move the car. A few minutes later, I come outside, and there's the cop sitting there. I said, oh, no. Uh-huh. I said, officer, don't tell me she didn't move the car. It's your car? I said, yeah, you know you parked in the handicap? I said, yes, I do. At this point, my wife comes running out of the car, and she starts, she throws herself at the mercy of the cops. She starts kind of crying, and yelling, he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. I promised I'd move the car, I didn't move the car. He's going to kill me. Uh-huh. So I told the cop looks at him and says, Lady, go back to your car. He told him, Lady, go back to your car. I said, uh, Listen, officer, I'm not killing her. We don't hit our wives. I've never hit her before. I'm not going to hit her now. Definitely not kill her. But I'll tell you, we went on a vacation the first time. And um, we budgeted the vacation to the last penny plus. And by giving me the tickets now for $150 or whatever it's going to be, I. I you're going to blow me out of the water. I have no way of paying it. The two kids had to make, and she promised she'd move the car because I had to run into the bathroom with them, just put it here for a second, and I'm moving it right away. She didn't, but the kids had to make, and it would have been for an hour and a half. I said, do you have any idea what it is to sit with your kids on your lap and they urinated on you? So the officer said, no, I don't know. So I was shocked. He says, you're not married? He says, I am married. He says, he had a child, and the child died. It's very, very... Uh, you can see that he's not Jewish, this guy. He had a real Italian name. But I, I felt terrible for the guy. It's a horrific thing. Anyway, he says to me, you know what? Get out of here. Get it out of here. Smooth the car. I mean, the story was legit. I, mean, it's not, uh, I said, I'm not going to be able to pay it. And you're going to take... And I'll lose my license. You'll have my car towed, whatever. Okay. <laughs> I said, officer, I'd like to repay you. His eyes almost fell out of his head. You don't bribe a state trooper. You don't give a state trooper anything. They'll lock you up. You'll never come out again. I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm not reaching for my wallet. I'd like to repay you. I'd like to give you a blessing, a blessing for a healthy child. I said, who is this? And um, he was fascinated. He said, Would you give me that in writing? I said, Yes. The blessing in writing? So I wrote to him that I, Isaac Heft, or Isaac Heft, granting a blessing to whatever the officer's name was, that he should have a little boy that should be healthy and should grow up to be compassionate to Jews as he is to me today. And I, had, I signed the paper. I started going to my car. I started going to the car and he calls me back. Rabbi! Uh-oh. <laughs> so I said, yes. He says, you didn't put your number. I was, I was floored. I said, oh no. 
he's really taking this thing serious. And I gave him my phone number, and he called me a, few, a year later to tell me that uh, he had a little baby boy, a healthy boy. A little less than a year later. Well, miracles happen. Yeah, God wanted to make a kiddush Hashem. It has nothing to do with me. Um, so Shemitah is just as such. Shemitah is, is, is something that you have to really understand that if Hashem is giving you a guarantee that it's only God could give such a guarantee that in the worst time the field is going to produce the most it ever produced on the sixth year when it's the weakest it's going to produce more than it could produce any other year <laughs> there's a, a shliach in France there's a Richard Pevsner Tashem Memches Tess they have declared Shnas Habinyan. Soon we have Pesach Sheni next week. Next week we have a Shia on Pesach Sheni. They have declared Shnas Habinyan. A year of building. People should build. People should do renovations. The houses, people should... And Rabbi Pevsner got very enthusiastic. And he got a major piece of land. And... He built a magnificent campus. It took three years. Millions of dollars later. But he, he got, people got very enthusiastic. The Rebbe said to do it. And the Rebbe gave all the big owners time. He sent them a hundred dollar bill. Every big donor that donated for this cause, for this building, and the purchase of the land and everything, the Rebbe sent a hundred dollars. Kitzer, before they started to use it, it was finally completed three years later. Rabbi Pevsner gathered up all the donors, 20 people, and he brought them to New York to go stand on Sunday line to get a dollar from the Rebbe. At that point, they would present the Rebbe a key to the complex. I can't describe to you the line for dollars. But when you come... Yeah. No. Not so much <coughs> the amount of people. If you come to 770, go to the front wall. Front wall? That's where the line ended. Or sometimes it went outside. The whole shul, up the steps, corridor to the Rebbe. You could wait two, three hours. But waiting two, three hours, the problem was that you knew that the Rebbe was standing two, three hours. So although you wanted to get that dollar, whatever occasion it was, you knew what the Rebbe was going through. It was uh, a bit of sweet. bring 20 people and tell them you're not special here as much money you have you're going to stand in line with the rest of the peasants one would think that's insulting it wasn't the honor to be standing on this line they came to the Rebbe and he said, and our president told the Rebbe, this is the group of people, donors that donated, made this project possible, campus, and there's a problem. Now there's a problem, excuse me, and there were problems throughout the years, over the three years it took, to, and the Rebbe gave the encouragement and everything, and now we came here to present the Rebbe the key before we opened the door, the Rebbe the key to the, to the campus. It's a girls' school. The Rebbe took the key, just to give you a little heads up what the Rebbe's shita was, the Rebbe's opinion was, the Rebbe said, thank you very, very much to every one of them, he gave them all an extra dollar, 
Rebbe smiled, and the president said, um, add another building. <laughs> Millions of dollars, three gorgeous buildings. He still had his old buildings, mind you. And the Rebbe's telling him to add another building. He says, can't, where's he going to fill these buildings? The kid said, the Rebbe said it. He wasn't joking. So, on the way back, obviously everybody resolved to, to give. They came to the resolution what they'll give, but they got to go find more land. How are they going to get from the city more land? They don't know. Mm. The ever said it. What she do? So, Rebbe on the first day, he's back. He went to the council. And he came inside and he said, Shalom, I don't know if you remember me. He says, Rabbi Pevzna, I'm the chassid of the Rebbe Lubavitch. Ooh. You heard of the Rebbe? He said, who hasn't heard of the Rebbe? He said, uh, I'd like to get an, uh, receive another part of the uh, plot of land. And he thought right now, this guy's either going to throw him down the steps, <laughs> or tell him, as a matter of fact, I'm giving you the whole Paris. And, uh, one of these two weird, weird answers are going to come back on him quick. But the Rebbe told him to go. The guy says to him, you know what? What did you do with the other land I gave you? He says, we have a, ma- a magnificent campus. He says, come. Show it to me. And he showed him around the new campus. And the guy came with him. He showed him around the whole campus. And the guy said to him, so he said... The president told him that the Rebbe said they should add another building. He says, your Rebbe is a prophet. He says, what? Your Rebbe is a prophet. I'll tell you what's going on. The mayor is running for re-election. One of his plans, if he gets elected is to take down your old buildings. He wants to build a mall there. So now your Pevzin is going to be short of space. Once he builds the mall there, you're not getting another inch of space. So you got to do this quick before the election. you got to start your construction. I'm granting you this and this amount of land you got to immediately start on it before the election because if the mayor gets in everything is closed it turns out the mayor did not get elected <laughs> he granted him the land and um, he did indeed build but short while there his old, the whole old edifice burnt so everything went to the ground so he didn't have any of that, that fallback space so he needed the new building and then even with the new building, things were just busting by the seams. So the man in the council saw your rabbi in New York, when he saw the rabbi ever heard it, is a prophet. And this is how we have to understand when the Eveshah tells us, I will take care of you the seventh and the eighth year, how we have to understand how it works. But the Shemitah, Vishav Saaretz, the land should rest, Shabbos Lashem. Shabbos to God. To God. What has to happen during the year of Shemitah? What is the farmer supposed to be doing? He can't plant, he can't reap, he can't do anything. What is he supposed to be doing? And why an entire year? What would be so wrong? Take four months, take three months, take. Why a whole year? How many days do we have in our year? We have 52 weeks. So let us take 52 weeks times 6. 6 days a week. 312. Very good. 
52 Shabbosim. It's 364. Every year, every so often, there's one more Shabbos. 365. So what happens here? person plants the field, six days a week he's supposed to work on the field. Can you tell the crops not to grow on Shabbos? No. So the crops in essence work on Shabbos. So they work on Shabbos, that's 52 weeks a year, 52 days a year that the fields are working on Shabbos. Six years of Shemitah, like we said before, is 312. Then, on top of that, you have every year, every, you have the extra Shabbos every seventh year, every sixth year. And in the year of Shemitah, you have 52 Shabbos. So that's 365. So therefore, to compensate for all the Shabbos that the field ends up working, we have a full year of Shabbos Hashem. To sit and to study Torah, to devote yourself to Torah, to compensate for the years, for the, all these days that your field worked on Shabbos. That's why it becomes Shabbos Hashem. A person cannot deceive his friend. You can't take things from people that are not yours. You can't tell a person, yeah, this is a good car, this is a good, and sell him a lemon. There's a lemon law in America too. Menachem Chernobyl was a very, very big chassid and became a rebbe of his own. One day, Nachum Chernobyl was walking in the street and he was approached by a very veritable looking man not like that word and he said and the man told him I'd like to teach you the secrets of Torah Sadot Torah Nachum said I'm very happy to learn it but before I let you learn with me I have to talk to my Rebbe Nachum Chernobyl went to his Rebbe who was the Mazich Magid, and told him what happened. I was approached by this beautiful, chsidish, holy-looking man, and he wants to teach me the secrets of terror. And the Magid told him, asked him, what did you say? He said, I'm a chosid, I have to ask my Rebbe. The Magid said, Baruch Hashem, you do that. Because Oiva Voyrach had to learn with this guy. This was the Sultan himself. But the Magad asked him, How did you know to ask? Nachim <laughs> Chernobyl told a very, very heartrending story. He was orphaned at a very, very young age. One of the sons, his mother passed away when he was very, very small. Father had to remarry. Raise a child. Had to have a mother in the house. But the stepmother was not the nicest person. And he used to suffer from her. One day he came home for lunch. I need to pick you up. I said, Gemara, not going to happen. He came home for lunch. And um, there was eggs on the pan she prepared. But she wasn't home. He was hungry and he wanted to get back to Shiva. So he took a portion smaller than he usually t- gets, less than what his mother usually gives him. So it shouldn't look like he stole anything. And he sat down to eat. He sat down to eat. His mother walks in. His stepmother walks in. She sees him with his plate of food and she slaps him around the face. His little boy starts to cry. He says, but I didn't, I, I took less than I usually get. He says, yes, you took less than you usually get. 
Abaraleinetmanisht. You don't take ourselves. You have to ask and you have to be given. You don't take your own. He says, I learned that lesson all my life. So when this fellow wanted to give me Sodot Torah, I couldn't take it on my own. I had to find out to get permission first. And that's why he came to ask the market. I wanted to learn the I wanted to learn Pekiyavis. Just a quick Mishnah, Pekiyavis, Perek Shlishi this week. Rabbi Akiva Emes Chayk Vekalus Reish Magilin Zadim Lerva. Rabbi Akiva says in Mishnah 13 that Chayk, light laughter and volatility, volatility, frivolity, excuse me, brings a person to lewdness. Mercedes Yaglatera, oral tradition is a fence around the Torah. Meiser Yaglatera, and Meiser, tenth, by giving a tithe, is a fence for riches. Nidarim Yaglafrishus, vows are a fence for abstinence. And ultimately, Yaglachachma Shtika, the fence for intelligence, for wisdom. Is silence. Vows, a person makes a vow, you're not supposed to make a vow. On one hand, though, abstinence is a positive quality. Because the fact the person person refrains from overindulgence is already a good thing. But still, the Chacham say not to. The sages said better not to make any promises, not to swear. And there are different times that a person goes through, different eras a person goes through, and Abakiva saw in his own life that being a ge- from coming from Gerim, how much you have to be careful with what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, at the time of the first base, I mean, there's very few of these restrictions of place to the Jews. Because they kept the Torah mitzvahs. The second base, I mean, was very less. And after the instruction, even more, that the Jews needed this iron hand to come down on them. And although now we're in a great era of spiritual darkness, we really need to put the restraints and all this yagin. We have to know that we're preparing ourselves now for Mashiach. And we're preparing ourselves for the redemption. And therefore, by knowing all our ways, we'll appreciate what Hashem does for us. And that's what He ultimately says, that will bring to the best possible blessings that a person could ask for, that he could inquire, can acquire. And we should be blessed with all these excuse me, high-level blessings, we should have longevity and health and nachas, and we should have a very, very good week.